Hello, and welcome to the Canadian Story, where we discuss what Canada is, what Canada could be, and what Canada should be. Hello, everyone. Thank you for being here, and welcome back to the Canadian Story. Today, we are joined by MP Larry Brock. Mr. Brock, welcome to the show. Thank you, Mr. Gerber. Pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure having you. Um, so if you would, could you please uh, brief your background, who you represent, and maybe talk a little bit about why you got into politics in the first place? Because I think that's an interesting question. Certainly. I, I'm a uh, fairly new politician, having having been elected uh, as the Conservative NP in September of uh, 2021. Uh, prior to that, I enjoyed a 30-year career in law. Uh, of those 30 years, uh, the last 18 was as a Crown Attorney for my hometown of Brantford, Ontario. Uh, previous to that, for the first 12 years of my legal career, I did a little bit of uh, defense work, um, family law, real estate, wills and estates, more of a general practice. Uh, so that that's my background. Uh, as far as my political background is concerned, I really didn't get politically motivated until about 2008. At that point, I decided to uh, offer my assistance in a number of uh, federal and provincial conservative campaigns in my hometown. I enjoyed that experience so much that I wanted to join the uh, the electoral district associations. I continued uh, my outreach and attended uh, various conferences put on by the Conservative Party of Canada. Uh, and ultimately, I became the president of not only the provincial EDA, but also the federal EDA. And again, enjoying my time as a Crown Attorney. Uh, my background, uh, education-wise, is I uh, graduated from the University of Waterloo, uh, with an honors degree in political science. So I've always, always enjoyed history and uh, and the political landscape here in Canada and around the world. Uh, never really thought about uh, running for office until about 2019 when the uh, previous member, uh, Phil McCollman, who um, held the conservative uh, uh, title here in Brantford uh, for 13 years, approached me and said, Larry, um, I may not run again in 2021. Uh, would you consider replacing me? And uh, that was the first time that I really had to have a serious you know, discussion with my family. Um, and then ultimately, I received the green light. My previous member did confirm that he was uh, retiring. So I made the decision in, um, if I remember correctly, January the 1st of 2021 that I would um, run for the nomination of the Conservative Party here in my hometown. I had a bit of a race. There were two other contestants. I eventually won the nomination race in uh, May of 2021. And Zach, um, long before the writ was dropped, which wasn't until August of that year, I was out door knocking. One thing that I just relished about campaigning and elections was the ability to communicate one-on-one -on -one with the electorate. 
There is no replacing that. You can do all the debates that you want. You can talk to as many media personalities as you want. You can put out as many blogs as you want. Nothing replaces that opportunity of having a one-to-one conversation on a myriad of issues. Not knowing who's going to answer that door, not knowing what kind of mood that they're in, you're trying to sell yourself to a complete stranger. I've always, always loved that opportunity. So once I secured the nomination, I was knocking on doors. In fact, long before the writ was dropped, I had probably had knocked on 10,000 doors. Wow. So I was I was ready. Uh, I said to myself, no other candidate, regardless of party affiliation, is going to out-hustle me in terms of my canvassing efforts. And once the writ was dropped, I was out three times a day, Monday through Saturday, consistently spending very little time in the campaign office and just connecting with the voters. For me, that was the greatest sense of satisfaction, and it allowed me to uh, portray my vision, my desires, and uh, my expectations uh, of myself as the new leader in this community. So uh, that probably is a good segue into one of the rationales as to why I took this leap at this late stage of my life. Um there was always a, a thought in my mind that that politics was for a younger, a younger uh, crowd. Uh, but once I, I actually joined the rest of my colleagues, I realized, you know what? There are several members who are much younger than me, several members around my same age, and several members older. Um, it doesn't matter what background you come from, what age you have, what ethnicity you have. If you've got a desire to make a better Canada and to improve the situation in your own riding, politics is for you. And I just have felt that in the last year and so many months since my election, everything that I have done education-wise, everything that I have done through my political career as well as my legal career has led me to where I am right now. I am exactly where I should be, and it's been a great, great sense of satisfaction representing the good people here in Brantford Brant. Wow. That was a heck of an opening. Well done. Um, there's a lot to unpack <laughs> there. Um, well, one thing, Zach, you need to realize is when you ask a lawyer to talk, okay, you're <laughs> not going to get a brief response. <laughs> <laughs> okay, duly noted, duly noted. Okay, so there's there's a couple things I want to unpack there. Um, first of first of all, um, I think it's such a great example um, how you approached canvassing for two reasons. The first reason being, I love the idea of out hustling your opponent. I think a little a little bit of that is lost, especially in my generation. Um, so much can be accomplished just simply by working harder than the people around you. So I commend you for that. Um, but secondly, what a great what a great place to put that energy um, because especially over the course of the pandemic, so many citizens that I spoke to and myself included, in many ways felt very unheard. And here you are out knocking on tens of thousands of doors. Um, can you kind of sum up? So it, that was happening in 2021. That's you know, we're, we're in the throes of the pandemic there. What were the, the pressure points? What were the, the points of pain for the, the people in your constituency when you knocked on those doors? What were their concerns? 
Well, there was a number of concerns. Um, firstly, you have to remember, and you're absolutely bang on correct, we are in the middle of the pandemic. We have a general election. Um, there were um, a strong suggestion that uh, wherever you are in public, whether it be indoors or outdoors, you mask yourselves. It was no different for political candidates. So here I am, okay, um, a fairly known individual in my community, born and raised, and, and people knew of my name by reading the local newspaper when I had uh, prosecutions of some significance. Um, you know, the reporters, local reporters would follow me. So my name was out there, but my face wasn't necessarily out there. So you compound that with a mask on top of this face. And I said to myself, well, how are they going to realize, how are they going to know this really is the candidate Larry Brock? So I thought of one nice thing is I would, I would label my mask. And uh, very simply, it was vote Brock with the Canadian flag in white. It was blue, of course, representing the Conservative Party with white lettering. And that's how I approached it. And I respected the fact that we're in the pandemic. You don't know whether or not people are for or against mask mandates. You don't know if people are for or against actually having a conversation in fairly close proximity. So I respected, I went to a, into a default type of mode that I would knock on the door. I would step away at least 10 feet from that door wait for the person to answer, and take cues from that person. Quite often, I would say, great, love to have a conversation with you. It's been lonely. No one's knocking on the doors, as you suggested. I'm not meeting with anybody. I feel socially isolated. It's nice to be able to have a one-to-one -one conversation like we used to have. It gave them some sense, a little bit of normalcy for five to ten minutes at that door. And quite a few individuals, Zach, actually said, please, please remove that mask. I want to see your face. We are outside. We are socially distanced more than what the health professionals are recommending. Please take your mask off. But I would always respect not knowing what the person's personal taste would be. I would arm myself accordingly. So that's what I was getting. It was a lot of sense of frustration, a little bit of anger that, um, People, some people aren't taking it serious enough. Some people are taking it way too serious, uh, oversensitive to sanitizing everything that, that's around them. And you had this middle group of individuals who wanted to take the best of both sides and to ensure their, their own personal safety and the safety of, uh, of their family. But I get, I guess the biggest takeaway was just that sense of, um, of a connection. They wanted to have a further connection, not necessarily with their own immediate family and immediate friends, but with strangers. And apart from, you know, attending your grocery store and attending to tasks that you would have uh, throughout your daily life, um, it was a novel concept in the middle of the pandemic to have a conversation on the front porch. So we knew as a party that would rep represent some challenges. And I think uh, as the campaign progressed, more and more people were talking to other candidates at the door. And um, I found that more and more times I was actually removing my mask than keeping it on and having a one-to-one -one, uh, conversation with a complete stranger.
Yeah, that makes sense. And isn't that a great example um, of approaching a situation with respect, but then letting it, and this is this is a gripe that I had within the pandemic. Um, to a certain extent, I felt like the citizen should be equipped to make the decision that they felt that, that was best for them. So you yes. approach with a mask, and then if the citizen says, hey, I appreciate you wearing the mask, please keep it on, that's what you do. And if the conversation is different, then you can kind of proceed based on the the comfort level of that individual citizen. The 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 mandates that we saw and the top down pushes that that we experienced were a one size fits all thing. And I don't think you can take the population of Canada and cram them all into one place because we're a very diverse and different people, and that's that is good. Um, so what are you doing now? Because you know now we're in 2023, for the most part. Uh, the sentiment I think within the country is that we've largely exited at least the crisis portion of the pandemic. What are you doing now to stay connected with the people in your constituency? A number of things, Zach. Um, I have a fantastic EDA, uh, some 25 members of, of, uh, of the community from all walks of life who have a passion for giving back to the community, volunteering, but ensuring that my presence is felt in a number of ways. So I engage in, in uh, conversations as we're having right now. I do I do quite a bit of uh, podcasting. I, I've been approached by my own local radio station here in Brantford, CKPC, to create my own political talk show uh, through a podcast, a weekly podcast. So I expect that's going to launch hopefully uh, February, March at the latest. I want to give people the opportunity simply to text, to call in, to email any question that they have of a federal nature. My view is I want to be as transparent and accountable to my electorate and no topic is taboo. Some topics, and, and this is reflective, unfortunately, of the situation we have here in Canada. A lot of people misunderstand the actual various silos that representatives have, whether this is an exclusive federal jurisdictional issue or a provincial issue or a municipal issue. So my staff here in my constituency office, second to none, one of the best decisions I made once I got elected was to actually retain the current staff that the previous member had, who had upwards to 13 years of experience, because my view was, I want to excel in customer service. They've done very well for the community. Uh, the previous member always received compliments at the efficiency and the expertise uh, of the staff. So I said to myself, as a new politician, you know, it would be really a, a stupid move on my part to dismiss them summarily and start fresh. I wanted to be guided by them. I wanted to learn as to their model of excellency in terms of customer service. And they've excelled. They've actually flourished um, under, my, uh, under my leadership. It's been a challenge because as you've expressed, uh, this pandemic not only placed restrictions on uh, Canadian citizens, but it also curtailed the ability to operate government services efficiently. And literally over the last year, Zach, it has been a real struggle, not necessarily just my riding, but I talked to my colleagues across this country. 
we are actually doing the services of what government civil servants should be doing. But because most of those civil servants were working from home on a reduced work capacity, a lot of the essential services were being compromised. Classic example, the passport fiasco. Mm -hmm. Uh, I had staff literally from the time that they arrived in my office from 8.30 in the morning, literally to 4.30 in the afternoon, sometimes on hold with Passport Canada just to find out where a particular application was in the queue. That's not what I pay my staff for. That's a civil servant position. And I'm very, very pleased that finally uh, the government has telegraphed to those thousands of civil servants that they're expected to leave their home, get back into the workplace at least three to four days, or I think it's two to three days uh, per week, effectively, I think in a couple of weeks. So I am, I am seeing some movement on that front, and I'm very pleased to hear that. So I think I deviated from the original question. Um, so in, in terms of my connection to the community, we also send out monthly newsletters. Um, we also have mailers that, that go out on a regular basis uh, throughout the community. I make myself available to a number of town halls if they are accessible to me. I make presentations to schools. I make presentations to chambers of commerce. I make presentations to cultural groups and to church groups. I never turn down an opportunity to let people know more about myself what my goals are as a, as a leader in this community and what we are doing as a party to make life a little bit better, a little bit better for us here in this community and much better for, for people across this country. So, uh, and I get all kinds of requests, daily requests. So it's important that I, that I make myself available for that. Sometimes it's a challenge, as you know, when you're in Ottawa, you don't have that ability. So you try to cram in as much as you can. Uh, when you do come back to the riding. Uh, for me, when I started off uh, as newly elected politician, I was able to get back on Thursday evenings and then have all of Friday, all of Saturday, part of Sunday to connect with the community and get back to Ottawa and repeat uh, for the next week. Um, once I became uh, involved in the Emergencies Act uh, Committee, unfortunately, that changed my my schedule, and I wasn't able to get back to the riding until Friday morning, sometimes Friday afternoon. So I had a half a day Friday, still the Saturday, and I was getting back early on uh, on Sundays because every week that I was sitting on the Emergencies Act Committee, voluminous material to review, to prepare, uh, to get ready for, and um, it's just the lawyer in me in terms of how I prepare for cases. I take that same skill set as to how I prepare for committees. So it does require some additional time. It's unfortunate because now my family has to suffer. They see less of me. But uh, fortunately, with the advent of, uh, of technology that we have uh, today with FaceTime, um, you know, we, we make do. I have a very, very strong family who are very supportive of me. A great team behind me here in Brantford, also in Ottawa. And I like to think that um, I'm doing politics differently. That's great. Um, and it's also a fantastic segue to um, the Emergency Declaration Committee. Um, please explain to myself and, and our listeners 
what that was all about, um, because there was a lot of fuss around the Emergencies Act. Um, but unfortunately, what I observe for the most part is a, a checking out kind of past that initial shock of what happened. Um, so describe what happened at the committee and what was the goal of the committee? The uh, <clears throat> the goal of, of uh, the committee from my perspective was that wherever possible, we would try to remove our partisan hats and try to work collaboratively as a committee to fully examine the circumstances by which the government felt they had to declare a national emergency and invoke the act and the, the consequences of that and whether or not future uh, similar situations should be dealt with in a similar fashion. So that was the overall concept or the goal that we initially started out at. Um, it became very apparent to me, uh, literally within a couple of meetings. Um, and those meetings, the, the initial meetings were more organizational, uh, Zach, as opposed to actually calling in witnesses. We had to discuss uh, the nature of uh, the scope, the scope by which we would invite witnesses to attend. We got some um, legal assistance with that. Uh, from the clerks uh, of uh, both uh, the House of Commons and the Senate. As you know, this committee was made up not only of MPs, but also senators, uh, 11 members in total. So the so committee, after, to sorry? clarify, the committee was 11 members in total? In total, yes. And this would be a group of nonpartisan, not, the collectively it would be nonpartisan, correct? It would be liberals, conservatives, like who... What were the colors of the people involved in the committee? Sure. Greatest concentration, which was should be no secret to you, were the Liberals. There were three Liberal MPs, followed by two Conservative MPs, myself and MP Glenn Motts from Lethbridge, Alberta. We had one Bloc Québécois MP. His name was Riel Fortin. And one NDP MP, that was Matthew Green. And then we had four senators. We had one, uh, well, I shouldn't say one. As you know, Justin Trudeau uh, removed the label several years ago of a liberal senator caucus. In my view, a zebra can't change its colors. Just because you strip a label of liberal appointed senators doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to strip themselves of an allegiance to the liberal ideology. So I, we were all braced with that fact that there were uh, two members uh, of the Senate group who were appointed by liberal prime ministers who would definitely support the liberal MPs when it, whenever there was a vote. And we had several votes, and I'll get to that. Then we had one that would, could be deemed to be independent, that could go either way, and one that was traditionally a conservative uh, senator. Um, so what we found was that, um, at least from my perspective, the whole concept of trying to work collaboratively to get to the truth. You know, as, as a former Crown attorney, 
um, the number one objective in any prosecution is to uh, show a jury or to present to a judge, wherever the situation is, um, all the evidence that you have, not holding back any credible evidence, and pursuing the truth. That was the ultimate goal. And I took that sort of ideology in my role as a conservative member on this committee, that I, I heard the, the, the narrative, the talking points from the Liberal government as to what they believed to constitute the national emergency and why they felt that they were legally justified in invoking the act. Well, that's fine, but the truth-finding process of this committee was to peel away uh, that proverbial onion to get to the core to find out whether or not those real facts supported the decisions and actions of the government. So what I found very early on, Zach, and we heard from, I, I would say probably close to 50 witnesses in total, what I found very early on was that the narrative that was sold in the House of Commons, that was sold to Canadians, that was ultimately voted on, um, was not necessarily the truth. A lot of the facts the government were relying upon were simply not true. And my goal was, and my, my partner's goal, my uh, MP Glenn Motts, was to expose those uh, false statements um, by asking the, the important questions. But, you know, and, and one of the frustrating things that I had in the committee versus the time that I had as a Crown attorney is sometimes it takes, it takes a, a, a quality amount of time to develop your theory of a case and to expose maybe the fallacy in what a witness is saying in terms of whether or not they're credible or not. It does take time. And unfortunately, in committee work, particularly in this Emergencies Act committee, we were hampered by time limits. The first round, you were allowed five minutes. The second round, you were allowed four minutes. And then you would continue five and four and alternate. Well, depending on the witness, and I found a lot of the government witnesses, a lot of the ministers who were called to testify, a lot of the witnesses from the prime minister's office, a lot of the witnesses from the federal uh, public service um, knew how to play the game and knew that they could literally talk out the clock. So you had to intervene. You had to be abrupt. You had to cut people off. And it was frustrating. It was frustrating for the MP asking the questions. It was equally frustrating for the chair of the committee. And whether or not it was frustrating for the witness, I don't know. But you didn't really have an opportunity to develop quality quality questions because of the games that some of these witnesses brought in to the committee. And I'll give you one example, Minister Freeland. I had probably two pages of really pertinent, relevant questions. And we got sidetracked literally in question number one. She wouldn't answer it. 
She wanted to pursue her own narrative. I cut her off. I continue to ask that question. She went down the same road again. I cut her off. She accused me of badgering the witness. I reminded her that this was not question period. This was a parliamentary committee, and she was expected to answer my question truthfully, that I had control over my five minutes, and if she wasn't answering the question, I was going to call her to task. So I literally burned all of my five minutes trying to establish the rules that she clearly knew going in as to what was expected of her, and I got nowhere, as okay, did, did several members. I think I think we need to pause here and and kind of focus on that because that is a gripe that I've I've developed over the past little while as I've paid more and more attention um first in question period and then uh continued into this commission um it is I mean you got to give credit where credit is due it's impressive how much some of these people can talk without saying anything useful right. you know and that is a weapon that they use to avoid tough questioning and when we're talking about the when we're talking about the ruling of a country in service of the citizens something has to give something has to change in my opinion because it should not be allowed that the people that my tax dollars pay are able to just simply sidestep questions and not answer them because they don't want to expose something about the truthful answer um and so I observed that first in, in, in question period and then in the commission. Um, so I guess who is responsible for, so I have two questions. Who is responsible for setting up the rules of the commission, M mainly in this in this scenario, the, the time limits, that five minute time limit, that four limit or four minute time limit, who sets that rule? And why is it that the witnesses are allowed to talk around the point without actually answering the question? Okay, great question. So it, it, as far as the Emergencies Act Committee was concerned, you have to remember, Zach, we have 11 members. And 11 members who have the absolute right to ask questions. We had a window of three hours and how we structured those three hours is we would use two blocks of 90 minutes each. Of those 90 minutes, depending on the number of witnesses in those 90 minutes, we also agreed, which is appropriate protocol, that each witness called at committee was able to give an opening statement for five minutes. So sometimes, Zach, we had three, sometimes four witnesses in that 90-minute block speaking for five minutes. So that's 20 minutes. I'll take that away from 90. You're down to 70 minutes. 11 members in 70 minutes. So we decided that, um, that you had to be equitable. And with the time constraints that we had, that's how we arrived at a five-minute window for, for round number one, then a four-minute window, round number two, with time permitting, then continuing that rotation again. Where we only had one witness, my, my example of Minister Freeland, she was the only witness in that 90-minute block. Um, so we had 85 minutes after her five-minute opening statement. 
We had 85 minutes to play with. So we agreed in principle that those would be the rules. Now, I toyed with the idea of taking a look at the really important, relevant witnesses after my frustrating experience with Freeland. And I suggested, and some of these suggestions did pass, that some of the ministers would speak for the entire three hours, or some ministers would speak for two hours, so that we had even further rounds to ask questions of that witness. But I wanted to go one step further. I didn't have the votes, so I did not pursue this by way of a formal motion. I said, if we have a particular witness that we know is going to attend on their own, relevant witness, um, for a three-hour window, let's do the math beforehand and let's determine how many minutes per witness per sorry per member would be allowed to ask questions so if i came to the conclusion that i could have maybe get nine minutes or 11 minutes uh, in in that three hour window let's block all that time together give me a solid nine minutes or 10 minutes with that witness i could get a lot accomplished and it, it had favor with some of the members but not all so I knew I didn't have the numbers to bring a formal motion. Uh, a lot of the motions that we did bring, Zach, were ultimately uh, voted down by the Liberal bloc, the MPs and the, M and the senators. So we had to be very judicious as to when and how we brought motions. So that was the, the rationale in terms of the, the time limits. Now, you raised a, second, a secondary aspect, secondary question. And that's something that's near and dear to my heart, and that is the ability to compel relevant answers. In my old profession, if a witness dared to deviate in the fashion that liberal cabinet ministers did during this committee and simply go off on a tangent on their own, I would have every legal right to stop that witness midstream and ask the judge to compel the witness to respond to my questions. You may not like the question, but unfortunately, this is a court of law. You are required to respond to that question. So that gives lawyers the ability to ensure that you can get somewhere with your theory. The same cannot be said in politics. The chair never had that ability. The chair never was acquired the vested power by the committee to compel witnesses to give relevant uh, responses. Wherever possible, I would engage the chair um, what, what I also found, Zach, was <clears throat> a lot of the really damaging, relevant questions that I had uh, ready to go um, would be blocked by liberal MPs, and they would block it by a point of order. They would say it wasn't relevant or it was not in scope, or they would talk about a number of other ways. All designed, obviously the clock would stop with an intervention like that, 
but all designed to hide the truth from Canadians. Okay, um, let me let me jump in there. Let's go back over the numbers of the eleven people uh, who comprised this um, committee. Was it a liberal majority? Yes. Why was it allowed to be a liberal majority when it was a liberal government in question? That's how it was structured. Who structured it that way? The liberal government with the support of the NDP coalition. That is a mistake. (laughs) I I don't really have anything else to say other than that is a mistake. Um, It was not. Obviously, Zach, when, when this was debated in the House, it came to a vote. Um, it was not supported by any Conservative member or Bloc Québécois member. It was supported by the NDP and the Liberals. Mm-hmm. So we were outvoted. Mm-hmm. And I suppose that's how democracy is supposed to function, but that is an obvious mistake. Um, so while I support democracy, I wonder how we can use democracy to make sure that when uh, a government of any color is being questioned for their behavior, they should not hold a majority on the committee of people questioning them. That's just patently ridiculous. <laughs> heartily agree. Um, so I kind of interrupted you, um, but I do want to ask one other question because I think this is also important. Um, why the th- why were you set to three hour windows to two blocks of ninety? Um, that's why all, could Zach? Hmm? That's all we could get. That that's all that like the, the committee time in the house or outside the house is, is very scarce. We have to arrange rooms, we have to arrange interpreters. We had a number of interpreters, and this is a separate issue, which I could speak at great length about the whole concept of hybrid parliament. Uh and the and the difficulties uh with members. Uh, speaking remotely in the House of Commons, a lot of members did not have the appropriate uh, government-approved headphones and microphone. And some of these uh, inappropriate devices actually caused physical damage to uh, many interpreters, where they actually had ear issues, painful ear issues that required them to receive medical attention. And were actually removed from the roster. So that created, and we never had that situation prior to hybrid. Uh, interpreters never, ever claimed medical leave because of, uh, of inappropriate uh, devices. So that created a, a problem in terms of allocating sufficient interpretive services to all of our committees. As you know, Zach, there are a number of special committees that operate yearly in Ottawa, in addition to a number of other government committees that often sit at night. So we also have to be reflective or or, sorry, respectful of the senator's uh, obligations. Again, the the Senate itself generally operates sometimes well into the evening uh, with their daily work. And they've also got internal committees as well. So it was a juggling act, and from that juggling act, we determined that the best that we could achieve was one day a week for a three-hour window. Now, we also discussed that never came to fruition, Zach. We also discussed the possibility of returning on break weeks. We all have break weeks. 
returning in the summer. Again, myself and MP Glenn Motts, as well as other members of the House of Commons, expressed their willingness to give up that free time to continue the good work on this uh, Emergencies Act committee, but we never got the votes from the senators. Senators were content with that one, one day per week, three hour window. So that's what we had to live with, mm. which is frustrating. I understand the um, the hoops that have to be jumped through, um, and I, I understand the need to respect the the time of of, of your colleagues. Um, but it is frustrating that um, it is frustrating that elected officials can only manage to scrounge up three hours a week to talk about perhaps the most important governmental move. At the very least in my lifetime, I would say, um, it just it it seems it seems silly that that is all that can be mustered forward, you know. Yes, and I, I, I I'm is. not that that isn't a uh, that isn't a slight on you. I, I gather that you you feel much the same way. Um, it also feels like this entire thing, which doesn't surprise me. I'm, I'm not surprised by this, but it feels like the entire committee was set up to not accomplish very much, and it was probably done intentionally. Would you echo that sentiment? Having reflected on my time on that committee for the last uh, almost a year, um, I couldn't agree more. Mm -hmm. we, we exposed all the mistruths. I think in terms of measuring success, Zach, we did get to the point where we found a number of liberal ministers deliberately lying to the public, lying to the House of Commons. Uh, we exposed those truths, particularly when the police witnesses were called to testify. We really challenged the credibility of Minister Mendocino. We significantly challenged the credibility of Ministers Freeland and Blair. That all came about when we uh, canvassed and, went and examined those police witnesses. Um, so in terms of success, I'm proud of what we did in that aspect, because that was used in the House of Commons. Of course, the government doubled down, would not admit to their errors, would not admit to misleading the public. They would never do that. But this, this goes to the whole double standard, Zach, that I have seen with this Liberal government and largely the, the Liberal-controlled media, that if this were a Conservative government caught in hypocrisy, caught in deliberately misleading Canadians and misleading the House into voting for the most draconian measure that a government could take on its citizens, the suppression and, and limitation of uh, our civil liberties, to be engaged in that conduct with no repercussions, no apologies, is appalling. It's absolutely appalling. And I think the only recourse that we have is a general election, where I can assure you that when I ever have the opportunity of discussing these issues, it's going to be on the top of my mind as to how this liberal government treated Canadians. Yeah, I think that gets to the core of the frustration of the entire situation for Canadians. It is that, and I'm, I'm speaking from my own opinion, so I'll, I'll say that freely, but it is the fact that a government was allowed to invoke an act that was very likely not necessary whatsoever, then get into the House 
and lie about what they were doing and then be examined by a committee, air out the dirty laundry that in fact they were misleading the public and then have no repercussion whatsoever for the elected government. And I'm not trying to drag the Reds through the mud. I would hope that this would function in that way for any color sitting in that office because all that we want from politicians is we want for them to put the the true interests and desires of Canadians first and to come at the problem, albeit a complex problem, of running a, a country honestly so that they do best by the people they represent. And it doesn't matter the color of that of that office at the at the moment. If you are misleading the public and you are lying, boldface lying to the public to cover up missteps and not performing in the best interest of the people that you represent, there has to be repercussion. And it doesn't seem that that is built into the political system that we experience. Um, am I mistaken? None. Uh, you're absolutely correct. Canadians deserve nothing less than full transparency and accountability with their government. So to your point about no, no enforcement, no accountability, no consequences, we know that Justice Rulo uh, in the inquiry um, spent close to 40 days uh, overseeing a number of witnesses uh, examined and cross-examined. He will be delivering his report sometime in the month of February of this year. Uh, hypothetically, Again, I don't know where he's going to come down in terms of his opinion, but hypothetically, if he is critical of the government and suggests that the government did not have the legal authority to invoke the act, what consequences are there? Well, the act itself that was drafted in 1988, uh, drafted by or the architect being the Honorable Perrin Beattie, never contemplated consequences. So there are no consequences other than a finding uh, from a re retired justice that the government lacked the legal authority to invoke this, this particular draconian law. And that could open up some civil remedies, uh, some civil actions for the number of people, number of Canadians that were severely impacted by the actions of government. But again, that's that's a separate cause of action. And, and really, I think the only thing that can be said of that is that there could be political consequences, but there's no penal consequences. There's no financial consequences for the government. And to your point, there, there should be a mechanism that if a minister or any member of, of the House of Commons deliberately engages in unethical and untruthful activities and doubles down and repeats those lines over and over again, as did Minister Mendocino, that there has to be some consequences other than political consequences in the next general election. Case in point, we do have, as you know, Zach, we have a, a um, a, a federal ethics uh, ombudsman or commissioner who has made rulings against various members of the government, including the prime minister, mm -hmm. who's been found guilty of several ethical violations. 
Several ministers have been found guilty of several ethical violations. His most most recent uh, scandal, that being uh, Minister Mary Ng, who uh, awarded um, a not so insignificant contract to a liberal friend, not on one occasion, but on two occasions. She should have known better. For her to simply say, I take responsibility, that's that's not enough. If you, if you remember, uh, during the Harper government, there was a minister, I believe her name was Oda, Bev Oda, who actually resigned over billing taxpayers a $16 glass of orange juice. So really, there's some double standards here in terms of what that threshold is before you can actually say there has to be some consequences other than, sorry, mea culpa, I'm sorry, I was caught. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's frustrating to members of the House. It's frustrating for me, given my legal background. It has to be frustrating to you and to many Canadians, thousands of Canadians, who hopefully are watching this, this podcast, because we deserve to have a responsible, accountable government. And when they cross that line, there has to be some repercussions for that. Yeah, and, and I would like to very plainly restress that this is not a partisan argument. This should apply to any party that holds that office. Absolutely. It's just It's just common sense. If a conservative is caught funneling money into the pockets of family members, um, taxpayer money into the pockets of family members through silly private contracts, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that should be punished. And we will have to work out what um, what punishment fits the crime. Um, and I do want to use the word crime because I was speaking with Senator Husakos um, on a recent episode, and he pointed out that an ethics violation is a violation of ethics law, therefore a violation of law, which is an important distinction. Maybe you would like to correct that if I'm mistaken. That's, that's no, what no, I heard. It, but it, it, it's, it's, it's a correct interpretation, but I would go one step further. And I haven't really put uh, this to thought, but I'm just amusing off the top of my head, is that uh, we, we could look at an amendment to the criminal code, mm -hmm. okay, to take a look at uh, a violation, a serious violation of, of ethics by a federal representative um, could 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 be found to be in violation of the criminal code. And as you know, every offense in the criminal code, Zach, does have legal consequences. So maybe it's time for us to, to visit that concept and see whether or not uh, we should demand better from all politicians. And I wholeheartedly agree with you. This is not a partisan issue. And I may be targeting certain liberal members, but the same could be said for any conservative governments in the past, um, any member of the House of Commons who engages in that type of activity and repeats it and doubles down on those lies should be facing consequences. Absolutely. Um, it's just, again, it's a, a very simple and blanket statement. Our leadership should not be above the law and they should not be able to use their power and influence to skirt around quote unquote ethics violations. Yep. Um, speaking of law, let's transition into um, the work that you're doing with the so-called revolving door justice system. Can you tell us about that? 
Yeah. Um, so one of, I think, to, to put this in perspective, Zach, one of uh, one of the reasons why I left a very comfortable lifestyle uh, in uh, in the in the legal system was I was frustrated in terms of what I was seeing in my community. I was frustrated in my lack of a voice to seek change. I was muted in essence. I had to accept the status quo and the status quo was really established by the Supreme Court of Canada in um, in 20, I think it was 2015 or 2016 which released a decision which started to change the landscape of our bail laws in Canada. That was followed up in 2017 with the Liberal government passing Bill 75, which made substantial changes to the bail system. And to your point, what we have seen since that time is more and more emphasis on ensuring that those accused of crime, regardless of their background, regardless of the crime, regardless of their station in life, should receive bail. That bail is the default position, that a release is a default position. That became very frustrating for me because I found, and being in in the legal system for as long as I did, you saw the same players literally week after week after week. In some occasions, individuals that I prosecuted in bail court would be released at 12 noon. They would reoffend at 12.30. There could be <laughs> domestic individuals charged with a myriad of domestic-related offenses with terms not to communicate with your victim, often their ex-girlfriend or spouse. The moment they get out, they've called the spouse. The spouse reports it to the police. The police are out there again arresting. These individuals get charged again and then ultimately get released again. So I was very, very angry that the current system was not addressing problems. There was an inequity uh, in terms of compromising the safety of the victim and the safety of the community. And Zach, we don't need to recount over the last number of years, those serious violent offenders who've committed the most heinous crime of first degree murder or other serious offenses. We've all heard it. We've all read the stories. We're on bail, had terms and conditions that could have included house arrest or electronic monitoring or banned or prohibited from owning any weapons. So I said to myself, if I can't change from within, if I have to be basically mindful of the direction I'm getting from the Attorney General of Ontario and mindful of the decisions released by the Supreme Court of Canada and the law as drafted now by the Liberal government in Bill 75, well, what better way to affect change by being the changer himself? We are all legislators. All MPs have the ability to advance legislation, new legislation, amending legislation, creating new legislation. So I can inform you, Zach, that uh, myself and another member of the House are, are looking at private member bills 
to address these, this, this catch and release uh, system that we see uh, in our courts right now. We are going to be talking about this. We have a national uh, winter retreat, caucus retreat at the end of January. We're going to be talking about the, the bill itself that we're proposing. In essence, what we're trying to do is we have to be mindful, and I'm, I'm forever very mindful of this, that we are all protected by the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. And within that charter, that document that applies to all of us, Zach, is a concept that is near and dear to my heart uh, as a lawyer and a former Crown attorney, and that's the presumption of innocence. That no matter the circumstance, no matter how strong that case is that I present, that person is presumed, is cloaked with innocence until his or her guilt is proven beyond a reasonable doubt. That's the standard in our criminal justice system. That's the standard that I had to apply if I was prosecuting a shoplifting case all the way to first-degree homicide. That's the standard. So I'm mindful of that. I'm also mindful of the fact that we have community safety concerns and we have victim concerns. So if you take a look at this hypothetical as a pendulum, in my view, the pendulum was so slanted prior to the Supreme Court of Canada in 2015, I believe, is when they released Antic, is the name of the decision. The bail system was so hypersensitive to ensuring public safety and victim safety that hundreds of unnecessary individuals were detained in custody or released on extremely stringent, serious conditions that was disproportionate to the crime and the circumstances. So that pendulum was skewed too far to one side. Then we have the Supreme Court of Canada moving that needle to the middle. Then we have our government in Bill 75 pushing that needle to the other side. And that other side is where we are right now, in my view, that there's more of an emphasis and concern about the rights of the accused to the exclusion of community and victim safety. Now, mm -hmm. I mention this all the time. This is my mantra in the House of Commons. I've said we have an imbalanced system. That pendulum needs to swing back to the middle again to ensure constitutional protections and community safety. What's wrong with that concept? To give the tools to the judge, to give the tools to the prosecutor, that when you have violent, repeated individuals who are clearly a risk to the community, they deserve to remain in custody. I don't so, even think the standard should be should be a repeat. You say violent repeat like repeated individuals. I think if you commit a serious act of violence, if you use a weapon against another individual, um and I have gripes about um self-defense and how self-defense is handled in Canada, but that's a different conversation. If you aggress, if you are the aggressor in a situation in a violent manner, I think I think that's where the line 
the line is drawn, in my opinion, until you are proven innocent. I, I like, I just don't see the sense in putting people who are violent back on the street or, or, or treating them, treating them easily. I think they should always be treated with respect because they are still citizens of our country. Um, but I don't see the sense in, in the release. It makes zero sense to me. So try if you would, um, to explain the counter argument. Why is it that, I think you said Bill 75, why is it that, what is the argument for letting these people out so easily? Well, it's, it's multifaceted, okay? Um, so the, the government would often use this phrase that our, our detention centers, you got to remember that as far as jails and and um, uh, prisons, if you want to call that, use that phrase, there's two different concepts at play. So after conviction, you either end up in a provincial correctional system to serve out your sentence, or if it's greater than two years, you end up in a federal penitentiary system to serve out your sentence. Those individuals prior to conviction um, could be held in a detention center. And there's no distinct building called a detention center. Um, to give you an example, the um, correctional system out of um, Maplehurst, just, uh, just north of Milton, to give you an example, Milton, Ontario has a correctional wing to the building itself, but also has a detention wing. So a pre-conviction type of scenario. And the government uh, using statistics from not only Ontario, but across the country was finding that more and more individuals were being detained in custody unnecessarily. These individuals who would not be deemed to be a risk to the community or a risk to the victim, if there was a victim. So the government wanted to um, push back on the trend that they were seeing that too many provincial crown attorneys like me were seeking detention when it wasn't necessary, that they were asking for uh, conditions of release that weren't necessary. So the pushback is, Zach, they didn't want this to continue. This was a violation of their presumption of innocence. It was a violation of their charter rights. These uh, institutions aren't supposed to be a club med type of environment they are harsh some are harsher than others but again the government was hearing about these extreme conditions um i heard not many years ago toronto south detention center one of the newer detention centers in ontario had just obscene conditions sometimes four to five people in a two-person cell, um, people literally sleeping on top of the toilet, 
um, toilets that were overflowing with feces and urine and just deplorable conditions that ought not to exist in a first world country. Stuff mm-hmm. that you would hear about somewhere in deepest part of Africa or South America, not in a, in a G7 country like Canada. So what you've presented to me, Zach, is, is a multifaceted issue that requires a multifaceted response, not necessarily just from the federal government, but also the provincial government who are responsible for these jails. These are provincial jurisdictional jails. They can make improvements. They can ensure that there's additional jails built or additional cells built so that we don't have these overcrowding situations, that we can ensure that those who belong in custody, that they are a risk to reoffend. to your point, that they have a history of reoffending, particularly those who have a record of repeated breaching of bail. At what point do you say, you know what, you made these promises 10 times in the past that you would abide by conditions. I don't believe you when you say to me now for the 11th time that you're going to abide by these conditions. You're going to remain in custody until your trial. That's what I want to get to. I want to be able to to give the the prosecution and the judge all the necessary tools to weed out those individuals, not simply just the repeat offenders, Zach. I'm going to push back a little bit on your suggestion because it's not workable in law. You'd have too many defense lawyers crying foul. And again, we would just be clogging up the system with all kinds of charter applications. We don't want that to happen. We already have a delay problem that has been exacerbated by the pandemic. We're still doing catch up in all the provinces. It's requiring provincial prosecutors to prioritize those really serious cases, perhaps to the to, to a lesser degree to the less serious cases, because another serious Supreme Court of Canada decision that was released years ago is a, is a case by the name of Jordan, which again is a presumption of, of uh, having your trial, uh, this is a charter right, having a trial within a reasonable amount of time. And Jordan set out a timeline for cases that are in the higher court, superior court, and cases that are in the lower court. And if you exceed that timeline, then there's a presumption of a charter breach. And I don't want to scare you, scare you, Zach, or to concern the public, but I have numerous examples where those charged with first-degree murder had their charges stayed because the Crown did not proceed or not did not give that individual a trial within a reasonable amount of time. So what is that deadline? It's 30 months in Superior Court and 18 months in the Ontario Court of Justice or the lower courts, depending on the province. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So I, I understand I understand your counter argument, obviously. Um so what becomes the solution to that then? Is it just that we need, like, where where is the bottleneck? Is it that we don't have enough prosecutors? Do we not have enough defense? Do we not have enough courtrooms? What is the problem? All of the above, Zach. More courtrooms, more provincial courtrooms, hire the full complement of justices of the peace. There are still 
vacancies from coast to coast to coast in every region. That is a provincial jurisdictional issue. Do it. Get the job done. You've got the funds. Service the community. Ensure that justice can be met. So that can be done. Yes, hiring more Crown attorneys, hiring more specialized Crown attorneys, having more specialized courts, gun courts. We have drug court. We have a mental health court in some of the larger centers. Why are only the larger centers having these specialized courts? Gun crime is prevalent throughout this entire country. We need specially educated and trained Crown attorneys in a special dedicated courtroom to deal with not only bail issues, but guilty pleas and trials. That can be done. The province, as I said, that I've alluded to, can improve the situation in jails, in detention centers, so we don't have these arguments of the inhumane conditions that the person must be released because we can't have this individual in this country, this G7 country, this first world country, suffering those consequences. That can be improved. We can provide more resources to police officers. We can ensure they're properly funded to hire more police officers so that if a person is wanted, like the most recent individual who killed that OPP officer, Zach, he was wanted for four months. If we had enough resources for that particular police agency where they could have a team of officers to track down these fugitives instead of waiting until they recommit, which is what happened in this case, this crime could have been avoided. And in my view, that crime definitely could have been avoided because that individual was not worthy of a release given mm -hmm. his background. Again, mm -hmm. separate topic, but that goes to my point. So, to answer your question, this is a multi-jurisdictional issue that needs to be addressed by the feds, creating the environment to change the criminal code, to provide a mechanism to hold these violent repeat offenders accountable, protecting the public, protecting the victims, having the province invest in an infrastructure and a system that's failing Canadians, it's not protecting communities, not protecting victims and municipalities. We all have to work together to address this. So yeah, that's I think why I feel so encouraged um, by the support that I'm getting from my colleagues that the time is right, the atmosphere is right to seek some fundamental changes. Absolutely. I think, I think pretty much every Canadian would be um, would be happy with the idea of keeping criminals off the streets. I don't think that's a that's a, that's a very hard thing to argue against. So, what what change would the bill that you are working on bring to legislation? How would it change how crime is is handled in Canada? <coughs> Excuse me. In much the same way that murder is treated. There, there, it, we, would, we would want to create for the serious gun offenses and those who are on weapon prohibitions, if you commit a similar crime, that there would be a presumption of detention so that you would not 
automatically go to bail court. You would not appear in front of a justice of the peace who probably has a hundred cases on his or her docket with a limited amount of time facing a overburdened a courtroom and an overburdened staff and an overburdened crown attorney who has to make an immediate decision as to whether to oppose or to release finding that precious time to have a to have a hearing is p- keeping this person in custody having that person dealt with ultimately in superior court or other other specialized court where they have to take the initiative to bring an application to the court, apply for bail. It's like a reverse onus situation. Um, and I guess one thing I should I should just uh, back up just a little bit is even those persons charged with murder, Zach, are entitled to make application for bail. They don't often get it. Some do. A lot of them do not. So we want to make it difficult. We want to make it harder. We want to give the Crown attorneys additional time and additional tools to hold these people in custody. That it just gets them away from that revolving door courtroom that people have in front of JPs, justices of the peace, that there is a longer process and a process that's more meaningful and that every participant can be fully prepared for. And you're going to have judges, not justices of the peace, who can spend more time to assess the plan that they're putting forward for release and weigh that in terms of community safety and risk to the victim. So it it doesn't automatically say that you commit this crime with these factors, you have to remain in custody. That's not charter proof. That's not how our system works. That is a direct attack on the presumption of innocence. Hmm. So I'm not attacking the presumption of innocence. I'm keeping these people off the streets, making it harder for them to apply for bail, still available to them, but it's a a more stringent process. And we think that this might be a step in the right direction. Yeah, I think that's great. And if I'm correct in understanding, it also gives judges more time to process those individuals and decide whether or not they should go to trial, correct? Yeah, that that makes sense to me. Um, Well, I wish you luck on that. I hope that it works out. Um, One thing I want to ask, and and perhaps you won't be able to answer this before you go, but since, since you have dealt with prosecution, do you have any sense, because I have many gripes with how the liberals are treating gun laws currently, do you have any sense on statistically what percentage of gun crime in Canada is committed by legally uh, by legal firearms owners with legal firearms? Zach, that number is so low. I don't have the actual um, correct statistic to provide to you, but I personally would be shocked if that was greater than 1%. That <laughs> highlights the real disconnect here. And it highlights the inappropriate approach by our current federal government that punishing lawful gun owners who have taken, who've done everything that the law requires them to do, the training, 
um, paying the fees and buying the equipment and buying the storage equipment and properly storing that, et cetera, they are not the problem. When someone decides, Zach, to um, rob a variety store, do you think the first thing that may cross their mind is, I better go uh, rob the farmer down the street and steal his long arm firearm rifle and somehow shove that in my backpack and then walk into a variety store and fumble around and pull that out and demand cash from the registry. It's ridiculous. It doesn't happen. The majority and the high, high percentage of criminal activity with the use of guns is done with handguns. Handguns that are smuggled illegally across our borders, our very poorest borders. Not enough money is being spent, not enough resources uh, are being uh, sent, not enough training, detection training to stop this, this steady flow not only of, of guns, illegal guns, but of some serious drugs. As we all know, we have a fentanyl uh, problem in this, in this country, an opiate crisis. Again, that's coming in through the borders. It's coming in through our ports from Asia. Um, there are a number of ways that, that we, as a federal government, not we, but the federal government could be doing to address these uh, these obvious issues and issues that they're prepared to accept is reality. I don't think that they're prepared to deny the fact that we do have a smuggling issue, um, but simply throwing money at it um, is not necessarily the answer. Something more needs to be done, and it's not being done as as quickly and efficiently as uh, as we as we would want. That's a, that's an interesting statement. What do you mean? Why, why is um, growing the funding for, for instance, uh, our borders and the security of our borders not, uh, not a, a big enough plan to fix the problem? I think it is a big enough plan, but I think you, you need more than just throwing money at the situation, hoping it would go away. I've heard uh, the government talk about uh, investing in uh, training opportunities with Canadian border officials with no details. I don't know if that has been even implemented yet. I've heard of uh, partnering uh, with the Homeland Security in the United States. Again, government is lacking in details in terms of how that is working. What are the metrics? How are we going to measure success? Um, what kind of money are we talking about? Is the federal government in the United States supporting this initiative? Are they providing the, the, the additional resources that obviously the, the U.S. system requires as well? So, uh, so that that's that's my that's my criticism. Yes, they acknowledge that there is a problem. Yes, they acknowledge it requires funding, but in terms of measuring that funding and looking at an actual plan and a timeline to implement some change, it's been pretty vacuous, in my view, from the federal government. Right. That makes sense. Um, I've I've definitely held you over time here, so I appreciate you taking the, the time to talk to us. Are there any, is there is there a parting statement that you would like to leave us with um, to, to perhaps give us hope for, for what we, we might see for the country going forward? 
Do you want a general statement or do you want a partisan statement? Partisan, please. (laughs) (laughs) The conservatives have a plan to restore community safety, okay, and to to restore faith that our country is worthwhile investing in, that we can provide for all of our citizens to improve their situation in life, to give us more freedoms, to keep that community safe, to welcome in um, legal immigration into this country. This country was built with legal immigrants. We welcome that opportunity. We have so much work yet to do post-pandemic. The time is now. We have to move fast. And we have a plan as a conservative party to form the next government. Well, thank you, Mr. Brock, for being here. We appreciate you taking the time. And uh, I hope we get to do this again sometime soon. I enjoyed it. Thank you, Mr. Gerber. Thank you for listening to The Canadian Story. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at The CAD Story. That's The CAD Story. If you enjoy this podcast, please share it with your friends and family. Let's work together to remind Canadians how great their country is.